Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. World Environment Day, we're celebrating it today. It doesn't often fall on a Monday and uh, today we're looking at all sorts of issues through an environmental lens, including now the security relationship between Australia and the United States. Climate is now considered a pillar of the economic and security relationship between the US and Australia and also for broader security alliances, including the Quad. Uh, The growing importance of climate in bilateral relationships uh, like the one with the US is subject of a new report out from the Climate Council. Dr Wesley Morgan is lead author of Climate Allies, Australia, the United States and the Global Energy Shift. And uh, Wes is on the line. It's great to have you on Triple R. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And when, I mean, when did climate start to feature as part of bilateral relationships when it comes to the US and Australia and security? Wes? Is this a brand new thing or has it been there for a little while? Well, it has been there for a little while, but it, it's fair to say that it's uh, come and gone a little depending on the administration in the White House and depending on who's in power in Canberra. Uh, But what is new is that now we have an official incorporation of climate action into the Australia-United States alliance. Uh, So we've got something of a meeting of minds between Canberra and Washington on the issue at the moment. You know, the the Australia-US alliance is crucial for Australia's security and uh, it's been a a, a key uh, security alliance since the Second World War. And But it's fair to say that it was not designed with a warming planet in mind. And so what, we're, what we have now is policymakers in Washington, in Canberra, saying, well, in the 21st century, climate change really is an urgent security threat and a threat to national security for both Australia and the United States. So they've agreed that to add climate action as a third pillar of the security alliance. And and the first two pillars are are defence issues and economic cooperation. And now uh, Albanese and Biden, they met in Japan a couple of weeks ago and they agreed uh, that climate action will be a third pillar of the alliance. And how much do we know already, Wes, about what that means to have a a third leg to this this alliance stool, um, so to speak? Yeah, good question. And the reality is that Uh, Both countries will now, having made it a a key pillar of the alliance, need to develop uh, deeper cooperation and shared strategy for tackling the climate crisis. I mean, it's clear that it is a security threat. You know, in in Australia, for example, more than half of the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, have been deployed to respond to uh, climate-driven disasters in recent years. So... You think of things like the uh, black summer fires, things like the recent floods, you know, so we just can't pretend that it's not an issue for our national security anymore. And the reality is for both Australia and the United States, if we are to avoid the the worst impacts of climate change, we really need to work together to decarbonise our economies and to press other countries to be decarbonising their economies as well. Because the only way to avoid the worst impacts is if the, all 
major economies are cutting their emissions as fast as possible in the near term. So there's a lot of work to do for Canberra and Washington to work together to really drive global ambition on climate. Is it clear to you yet uh, in doing the, the study here, the Climate Alliance Allies report, what's cooperation between the US and Australia and incorporating climate with security and economic interest there means for the region? I mean, the Pacific region in particular, which is uh, close to Australia, is vulnerable to climate and vocal uh, and also a staging post for security reasons as well. Is it clear what that what the cooperation might mean for our Pacific neighbours uh, yet, Wes? Well, yeah, well... Uh Pacific Island nations have been crystal clear for decades that they see climate change as their single greatest security threat. And uh, both, you know, Australia is very keen to be seen as a security partner of choice for Pacific Island countries. And so what that means is that Canberra needs to start to see climate change in the same way that Pacific Island countries do, as a security threat. And then Australia needs to work with the Pacific to tackle that security threat. That will help to cement our place in the region. And working with the United States to do that will help... You know, that, that's a key, key part of the alliance, is working together in the Pacific, but also more broadly across the Indo-Pacific and in Asia. And, um, you know, that, that, that's about avoiding the worst impacts of climate change, but it's also about managing the energy transition... So we're seeing now that finally countries are getting serious about the clean energy transition. And what we're seeing is that one country is a long way ahead of everyone else, and that's actually China. So China is the world's biggest producer of uh, batteries, of electric vehicles, of solar panels, of wind turbines. And China actually uh, leads or dominates a lot of the uh, clean energy supply chains, so the minerals that you need for making these technologies. And so having made climate action part of the alliance, uh, Australia and the United States are actually cooperating to diversify clean energy supply chains as well. So to make sure that uh, it, it people, make sure that countries are not completely reliant on one supplier for their uh, clean energy technologies. That's a key part of why it's part of the alliance. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's an absolutely fascinating part of your report is that sort of a question, I guess, that's left there, which is how does the arrangement with Australia and the US, uh, Australia obviously is, is mineral rich, supplies mm -hmm. a lot of what China needs for its economic development as well. Mm -hmm. How does the arrangement affect supply chains to China? Is it likely we're going to choose here in Australia where we're supplying minerals to, or do you think there's enough to go, enough to go around from, um, from, from the mining interests here in Australia? Yeah, excellent question. And, uh, I mean, Australia does export a lot of minerals to China. You know, for a long time we've exported iron ore and coal to China as our biggest exports. And uh, as the world transitions and China transitions towards clean energy, we're very lucky because we're well-placed to supply the, the things that countries like China and countries like the United States need for their clean energy transition. So we are at the moment the world's biggest lithium exporter, for example, and lithium is a key component in batteries. So uh, I, I think we're not looking to uh, choose one or the other. 
at this, certainly not at this point. You know, we, we want to sell lithium to China and we want to sell lithium to the United States as well. But I think um, Australia is keen to work with the United States to diversify the uh, supply chains to help other countries also be active participants. Uh, so in our region, that might be countries like India, who is has plans to become a clean energy power man manufacturer uh, to develop its own solar industry, its own electric vehicle manufacturing. And we're also keen to uh, support the United States in, in the US's plans for it to become a big clean energy ma manufacturer. I mean, uh, I'd be keen to, to, to talk to your listeners about, about that as well. The US has... They've, um, They've put stumped up uh, half a trillion Australian dollars for this thing that's misnamed the Inflation Reduction <laughs> Act, and 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 it's really a giant uh, industry policy, a, a set of subsidies that that show the US is finally getting serious about uh, the transition to a clean energy economy, and it's because they know they're in a race for tomorrow's economy. They're racing with countries like China. And they've suddenly realised, oh, hang on, you know, China's a long way ahead of us in making batteries, in making electric vehicles, in making solar panels. And so they have this... They've stumped up a lot of money uh, subsidising their own clean energy manufacturing. But they've also made... If you want access to those subsidies, you have to source your critical minerals and your component parts either from the U.S. or from other countries that the U.S. has uh, a free trade agreement with. So, so a country like Australia, we have an FDA with the U.S., we are a key security ally, and so Washington's really looking to us to be a supplier of choice, uh, you know, a secure partner and to diversify away from China uh, to su supply them with uh, things like lithium, but but a whole range of critical minerals that are important for their clean energy manufacturing. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Wesley Morgan, and really, uh, well, his report um, put out with some colleagues at the Climate Council called Climate Allies Australia, the United States and the Global Energy Shift is really piecing together how uh, security... Uh, economic as well as climate um, pillars of the alliance between Australia and the US are interacting and it's looking at supply chain diversification and also competing with China which is uh, already becoming an energy superpower in the world and I, I guess um, with regards to the Inflation Reduction Act which is as you say uh, a misnamed but it is uh, has been called uh, a green arm, green arms race, or a green gold rush, uh, wears with regards to how um, how the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is actually starting to draw, you know, different um, technologies and knowledge from from other countries, and Europe is certainly seeing it as competition. I mean, how do you think this might play out? The US's real hunger, I guess, for the, for the minerals and for the know-how to start to build uh, clean energy technologies and also renewable energy infrastructure in its own country? Uh, it's, there's no doubt that it's a global game-changer and uh, it's really turbocharged the race for tomorrow's economy. You know, as I say, the US... It, it, it's by a long way the United States' biggest ever climate spend... And uh, it's half a trillion dollars, or around a quarter of the Australian, uh, of our whole economy. 
that they've put up as tax credits and subsidies to really drive private investment in the US to things like uh, renewable energy capacity, things like uh, battery manufacturing plants, things like shifting all their auto manufacturing to electric vehicles and developing a, a green hydrogen industry in the US. And it's reshaping the global economy and, and, and re, you know, like around the world, you can hear the sucking sound of Uncle Sam's subsidies as um, big companies, they, 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 you know, even here in Australia, you have big companies saying, oh, should we invest in, uh, you know, a, a battery manufacturing plant in, 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 in WA or with these subsidies available, should we invest in a manufacturing plant in the United States? And so capital is going to the U.S. and talent is going to the U.S. And that, you know, it, it, it's both an opportunity for Australia, the fact that the U.S. wants to buy lots of our critical minerals, but it's also a real challenge for us because, you know, Australia, we are well-placed to be a clean energy superpower. You know, we have some of the cheapest renewables in the world. We have lots of space for renewables in capacity. We have lots of the minerals and metals that the world needs. We could develop a whole suite of new green energy exports, but it won't just happen. You know, we need to have our own industry policy that will in make sure that we seize this really once-in-a-century opportunity uh, for us to shift from uh, our past as a fossil fuel heavyweight to our immediate future as a clean energy superpower. So, you know, the IRA, it, it, it really is a call to arms for the Australian government to respond with our own industry policy uh, to support our clean energy exports. Yeah, and it gets a sense that the uh, sort of strategic interest when it comes to being yeah, a, a, a trading partner of China and a an ally of sorts with, with the United States is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, it's been really interesting, Wes, talking to you, and I commend people, if it's piqued your interest, to go to the Climate uh, Council website and read the report, Climate Allies, Australia, the United States and the Global Energy Shift. And, yeah, it's been great having you on the show today, Wes. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We're going to be zeroing in on plastics this morning uh, and solutions to plastics pollution is the focus of global conversations this year for World Environment Day, 5th of June. Uh, the stats are sobering. You might have heard some of them. Uh, less than 10% of plastics uh, globally are recycled. Uh, about an eighth of the 400 million tonnes of plastics produced around the world each year end up in our oceans and waterways. So it's a huge issue, but there are emerging solutions. And Cam Walker joins us monthly. He's with Friends of the Earth. And uh, Cam, it's great to have you. Good morning. Happy World Environment Day. Yes, thanks. Same to you, Kalia. Uh, and, I mean, how do you fathom the plastics pollution problem? I, just looking at those stats, I kind of go, like, it's, it's massive um, to think about it. It is. That figure of 430 million tonnes a year, like think how light plastics are. So to create a tonne of plastics, you know, compressed at that weight is a heck of a lot of plastics and then multiply that by, you know, 430 million. Um, it's a mind-boggling figure and we know that plastics are a real problem uh, and we have done for years, but it's really interesting that this issue has just almost 
come out of nowhere in the global sense. It's just been uh, since early last year that there's been a very vigorous and strong global debate. We've just had uh, the conversation around the UN Plastic Treaty and they're trying to fast-track it to uh, basically have another meeting at the end of this year and full sign-off and implementation by next year. That is absolutely at lightning speed compared to most of the UN uh, and, and global conversations, you know climate change, we still don't have a proper solution to climate change at the global level and that's been dragging on for 30 years or more. So yes, the the speed on this is very heartening and I think that's because so many people, so many governments, so many uh, businesses have just realised the scale of the problem and that it's just going to be completely out of control unless we get a handle on it soon. Yeah, and I mean, we're seeing plastic still washing into the oceans and I think people that spend any time in the top end part of Australia will see some of the plastics issues that they're dealing with washing up on beaches, but also certainly in Southeast Asia and around the world. I mean, Friends of the Earth is a a global network of grassroots organisations. I'm sure people are aware of that. But what are the kinds of issues that local communities are facing, Cam, in places like Southeast Asia, in, in Africa, in South America, where there's a strong Friends of the Earth presence? Well, we do know that the Australian recycling system really isn't working and traditionally we have shipped a lot of our waste overseas to be recycled and that basically takes the problem with it. People will be aware, as you said in the intro, it's about the fossil fuel industry, the feedstock for a lot of our plastics and the vast majority come from the fossil fuel sector and some in that industry as we you know do the massive build of renewables and battery and storage and we come off fossil fuels some people in that industry see plastics as you know the next great frontier for them so they're pushing very hard for expansion but often what happens is products get dumped in the global south and we deal with that I know in South Africa that's been a real issue in the Philippines in Indonesia where waste goes offshore and then often the local uh environmental protection rules aren't as strong as they would be here and so waste might get partially recycled and then dumped. It might be basically just dumped into unwilling communities at scale. So yes, it is a massive problem. There's a flow of resources around the world, as we know, but generally what happens is the extractive industries are really big in the global South Africa, Latin America and so on. Uh, And so, you know, the good stuff we want comes here and all the products we want, you know, the fridges and the cars and, you know, the, the iPhones and stuff like that comes here, but often the waste is left in those countries and unfortunately that is true when it comes to plastics as well. And so is there a sense that there are solutions, Cam? I mean, the the rapid international discussion that you characterised just before, that it's gone from big issue to big discussion point in a really rapid, um, very few years really. Uh, Is there a sense that there are are solutions and that they're coming from the places that are bearing the brunt of it? Absolutely. And um, in the most recent meeting that's just happened. There was more than 170 countries there, so it was a really good, you know, show up. You had uh, some villains, because in these forums, it's just like you just have to have some villains. So, of course, they were the usual ones who were trying to put the brakes on uh, China, Russia, uh, the oil-producing countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, but it's it's not like the bad old days. Uh, the USA is a good citizen again, and Australia is a good citizen again, and our um, environment minister, you know, is playing a really good game in this I think. And um, out of that 170 nations, um, there was a, a subgroup which was called the Hack, the High 
Ambition Coalition, and Australia is part of that. But the exciting thing is it was actually led and initiated by an alliance between Rwanda, an African nation, and Norway. Um, and I think that really highlights the fact that the southern nations understand they are on the sharp end of the waste dumping and having to deal with the recycling industries. And what we do know in these global conferences and compacts and treaties, if you can get the north and the south talking together as a united voice, you start to get action. Often the southern voices are excluded for a very long time, as happened in the climate debate, for instance, for, you know, for years and years. The fact that we're starting off with almost everyone in the room signed on to the High Ambition Coalition, which will aim to limit the use of chemicals uh, in feedstock, as well as deal with plastic once it's it's actually created and, and discarded. I think that sets off to a really good start. And at these meetings, normally what happens is you, go, you aim for consensus, but because the villains were blocking, basically the nation said, well, let's just go with a majority vote. And I think that shows that they're not going to, you know, wait for people to slow them down. They're just going to get on with it. Yeah, and I promised people uh, a sort of a good vibes uh, World Environment Day program today, Cam. And so you are, you know, you are bringing the vibe right now. But I, I guess I'm interested in uh, the the burden, I guess, that some communities are facing. I was recently in Indonesia, an incredible place uh, at a surf spot, and the the community there were Herculean in their everyday effort to clear beaches of of waste that really wasn't coming from their community. It was coming more broadly. And, I mean, what's the sense of how we might remove the burden from from individual communities and start to deal with it at source is there is there a sense that that is in focus with the the big international discussions Yes, so there's this kind of zero draft idea that's been enshrined in the treaty and they want it to become legally binding because often we know big business always demands voluntary guidelines rather than enforcement. So what we need is a legally binding uh, agreement so that people can't dump products uh, that become unacceptable here. So our listeners would be aware Australia is actually really bad in that we have very high consumption lifestyles on a per capita basis and we're one of the world's largest uh, single-use plastics users per capita on the entire planet. So a lot of this rests on, you know, countries like us really stepping up and it's good that Australia is. But in a lot of those countries, uh, there will be dumping, you know, of waste from the global north places such as Australia and that's why as you say local communities in the south are you know cleaning up and and, and dealing with mess that wasn't of their making and it's really important that this treaty become legally binding that we do fast track it and that we actually enforce um, the fact or the proviso that richer countries and richer businesses can't basically dump their waste in the global south anymore. Yeah, and I know, um, I mean, China and others have rejected Australia's waste, that's for sure. Cam Work is with us, Campaigns Director for Friends of the Earth. And, I mean, if we have a look at Australia, we are seeing action at the state level in particular. Uh, yes, we've got our Environment Minister on the world stage, but um, more locally, I think all states now, but Tasmania and the Northern Territory are taking steps to phase out single-use Plastic, so these are sort of the flimsy shopping bags and, and, and so so forth. But also we're starting to see action on things like plastic bottles, plastic straws, balloons, plastic cutlery, uh, basically the whole, you know, the, the olden days picnic set, I guess. I mean, how, how important are these sorts of uh, initiatives, Cam? And I guess 
are they significant enough yet in Australia? They're not significant enough, but they are growing day by day, and Victoria has done some very good work, the Victorian government, in this space. Uh, there's been this long conversation around deposit legislation, and the industry managed to kill that off in Victoria many years ago. I don't know if people remember when they were kids, you know, the milk bottles were returned, and, you know, we did have cash deposit can. legislation. <laughs> exactly, cash can. Uh, and that's how, you know, the scouts and the guide groups all made their money, was collecting, re, you know, old cans and stuff like that. The industry didn't like it because it required them to do additional things beyond just selling you the product and then relinquishing you know the, any any responsibility they had we are moving much more to towards closed loop economic systems where you make a product and you can't then just sell it to the consumer and wash your hands of any responsibility you need to make a product that can actually be recycled or reused or refashioned and then assist in getting that back into the loop and, in effect, back to the consumer later on. So that impacts on what type of feedstock we use, what type of plastics we use, because some plastics can be recycled, others can't. It's things like deposit legislation on those harder plastics, which are generally uh, you know, able to be recycled in a pretty straightforward way and in a continuous way. And there's just that example of us as a massive per capita polluter. We can't expect the world to step up unless we do. The rich always have to demonstrate willingness to do their bit and that's why countries like Australia there is always as with climate change as with all those big issues there's a responsibility on us to you know to keep going to do the right thing to rein in the production of plastics in this instance and uh, really set in place good recycling and reuse facilities at the domestic domestic level and stop thinking we can just export the problem to other countries. Uh, Cam, we um, just got a, a, a question in on the text line. Um, the Triple R text line is 0466981027. I don't think I've read it out yet, so someone's got it in their phone and they're asking about sort of the wrapping around fruit and veg in supermarkets. And I, I think with following the Red Cycle drama, the, the company that was set up to, to recycle soft plastics, some supermarkets are putting signage up, warning people about, you know, the recyclability uh, or claims around recyclability of, of plastic wrap. I mean, what's the sense there about uh, consumer trends, I guess, regarding things like, you know, plastic wrap around bananas, for instance? You always see the outrage and whenever you're in a supermarket and you see, you know, a product that's probably just travelled a thousand miles in the back of a truck and it survived quite well, you know, with the skin it has, the banana skin it has or, or whatever and then we've got to wrap it in plastic at the last, you know, three minutes of its life uh, to get it to, to the consumer. We all just go, look, that is ridiculous. Um, consumers are well ahead of business and they're certainly well ahead of supermarkets in regards to this and there is massive discontent um, over the failure of the soft plastic recycling because as people know you can't just chuck that stuff into your recycling bin you've got to you know collect it and sort it and take it to the the bins in the supermarkets and people have really stepped up and tried to do the right thing by separating their waste and their recyclables and you know remembering to put them in the bag when you go to the supermarket all that stuff and I feel that people are legitimately annoyed you know that the industry just has really dropped the ball on this and has comprehensively failed us and you know I guess the only good spin on this is where there's anger and mobilised anger in the community that normally leads to a good outcome because it drags industry kicking and screaming and sometimes governments as well to the table to start responding to the problem and there is still a very big problem with soft plastics.
And, uh, I mean, another quick issue while I've got you, Cam, we have heard changes coming uh, our way in Victoria with regards to native forest logging. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, like, this is pretty amazing. Um, it's a campaign almost 50 years long. Uh, we know that it was well overdue. We know that native forest logging was failing to regenerate. There wasn't enough timber because of overlogging historically, plus the massive fires we've had over the last 25-odd years, which is costing taxpayers. I think last year, financial year, it cost us $54 million for the privilege of having people logging our native forests. It wasn't viable. It's impacting on climate and carbon stores and water and biodiversity and green open space. There was just millions of reasons we had to end it. And it is fantastic that the Victorian government has done the right thing. They've listened to the community. They've announced they're going to end native forest logging by January 1st. Their previous timeline was the end of 2030. So they've brought it forward, which is incredible. And there's also a lot of money, more than $500 million in transition funding. And that's essential. You can't close an industry without looking out for the people and the communities that will be impacted by that decision. So, as a decision, it is fantastic. It was overdue, but it is absolutely fantastic. Well done to the Minister Ingrid Stitt. Well done to the Premier. Well done to Lily D'Ambrosio, who was the Minister previously. Well done to everyone in government who got it over the line. And uh, well done to them for leading with the worker transition angle and putting a lot of money on the table to look after people and their communities. And I, I think um, well done also to Friends of the Earth and other groups that have kept this front of mind for decades now. So, um, Cam, on that note, uh, thanks for being with us on Triple R again, and we'll catch you again in a month's time. Yes, talk to you then. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. It's great now to have film director Celeste Gear in the house. Uh, Celeste's film, uh, Then the Wind Changed, an emotionally powerful documentary on the Black Saturday fires, won a Walkley Award and screened widely, including on free-to-air TV in Australia. And her latest film, which featured at MIF and just secured a cinema release this month, is called The Endangered Generation. Put the question mark on there. Um, a film made with Monash University backing and which, among several storylines, follows the journey of a young Guna woman from the jungles of Panama to represent her people at the climate talks in Glasgow two years ago. And I had the privilege of seeing the Q&A screening yesterday at Cinema Nova. And Celeste, I'm going to put your microphone on. Uh, congrats, big congratulations. Thank you so much, Carly. It's lovely to be here. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. It's great to see you. And uh, we've known each other a long time, so it's just great. Just great to see you uh, in general and I, I took so much from the film but I mean tell us what you set out to do with the endangered generation. I think I set out to ask the question of why when we have the science at our disposal when we kind of are academically aware of the risks that the climate crisis is posing to our very existence as a species. Why are we not acting with sufficient urgency? Why are we not acting fast enough? And if the current mechanisms that we have in place for reaching a solution are not working, then where else can we look? So the investigation was to set out and to say, well, we are an incredibly adaptive, resilient species and we have this amazing power to collaborate when we want to and to do incredible things when we're unified behind a common goal. So where else can we look for examples of that on the planet at this point? And 
What a premise to start with. And where did you start? Did you start here in Australia or here in Melbourne or, or did you start to look? Because you take us all over the place in this, in this documentary. Well, I started um, with Monash University and I was given access to all of their academics because they wanted to explore this idea that academics are not people who simply work in a library, in a cloistered environment, but they're people who are really engaging with real-world problems and working across disciplines, engineers working with doctors, community workers, artists, and everybody bringing their different skills and disciplines together to try and solve really complex global issues. So Monash was the start. Then I was kind of trapped in my room due to COVID and it was quite a challenge <laughs> to make a film about global collaboration when everybody was landlocked. And then, um, like all great investigations, you meet one person who says, by the way, have you met Joe Michaels who photographs icebergs in Antarctica? And then Joe introduces you to someone else and then you're speaking to an evolutionary biologist in the deserts of Borrego and she says, by the way, I'm about to go to Panama do you want to come to Panama with me? And I suggested that to my producer and he said, yeah, you're going to go to Panama. And that was pretty exciting. Did you go yourself to Panama? I did, yes. So I was in those jungles. I was in the raft. We didn't see you sweating. No, but there are some very good photos of me kind of drifting down a river, fully clothed. Wow, I having... did not realise you went there, Celeste. So you were, so you would, you were behind the camera then, or you had I a was, crew with you? I or... had a, a crew of two amazing Colombian cinematographers, who were also um, champion rock climbers, which was a very good skill to have in the jungle, <laughs> as we were schlepping camera equipment across. So, so how did that collaboration then happen between the, as you say, the evolutionary biologist from very dry uh, United States and a Panama young woman in, in Panama who was about to head over to the climate talks in Glasgow? How did that come about then? Well, Tamsin Willie Baker, who is the American evolutionary biologist, is actually a a dean of the School for Biocultural Leadership in Panama. So it's this amazing concept where they've set up a university in the middle of the jungle and this area had been totally deforested and um, like in a similar situation to what's happening in the Amazon, people come in and just kind of slash and burn. And um, a particularly inspiring man started to reclaim that and so has now restored an amazing stretch of ecological corridor which has preserved an amazing amount of species and it's one of the most biodiverse areas on earth um yeah and that's where you've been and that's where you took us in this film and I I actually was really taken by the the Guna people that you introduced us to in this film and also the way we are introduced to them because it's via uh one of their own, a young person who's been really given an honorous, but I think she welcomed the, the chance to then represent her people and Panama in Glasgow and talk about their plight and also their solutions, I guess, as, as well. Uh, I mean, what is the, the, I suppose, the challenge there for young people to, to step up? And I guess you can speak from the, the Guna experience that you've just had visiting there, but what is it that we're looking to our youth to do when it comes to climate, do you think, Celeste? That's a complex question. I'll, I'll just start by talking a little bit more about Agar, who is the lead character. 
Um, so she is a Guna woman and she is charged with the task of representing the ideas of her people because her ancestral land is actually an island. And much like the Torres Strait Islands here in Australia and many low-lying islands, those um, places are going to be the first to really feel the impact of climate change and their land is literally sinking and their culture is under great threat as well because with the loss of their lands comes the loss of cultural practices. So Agar had a great belief that she wanted to take this message to the world stage and one of the things that the Biocultural Centre for Leadership in Panama does is it trains up young people because, as we know, diplomacy and the international stage at the UN, it's got a very formulaic way of relating. There's a lot of uh, words, protocols, things like that. that a it's... lot of microphones and people putting their hands up and, yeah. Exactly. So they train young people. And one of the central characters in the film as well is a man called Juan Carlos Monterey Gomez, who is an inspiring individual who led Panama's delegation to COP26. And in that delegation, they just had this incredible mix of young people. And it was, I think, 70% women and a lot of Indigenous people were on that group as well. And that just was vastly different to a lot of the delegations that somewhere like Australia send to negotiate at those things where it's largely older white men who have those roles and what Juan Carlos would say is that nobody has a greater incentive than young people to preserve their future. Yeah and I mean I I guess when I was asking the the role because we know with a lot of indigenous cultures there's elder respect so you've got this wisdom of elders and wisdom of past generations and then messenger the messenger now being agar a a young person and I, I just think that's such a fascinating interplay between young and old and I mean it's something that I think Agar absolutely rose to in the film and we saw her um, shine actually on these as climate talks but but what is it that we are looking to our youth for with that sort of I suppose challenge we want them to challenge and to accelerate how we act rather than people that maybe you know, don't have so many years left on their life and maybe have had, you know... I think so. And also to form different relationships because obviously at the moment it's quite troubling to think that at the top of those UN negotiations there's still a lot of people who are intrinsically linked to fossil fuel industry. And so there's that massive lobbying that happens that people are beholden to that. The negotiators are beholden to the profits of fossil fuel companies rather than the continuation of our species being the prime function for their position there. Whereas I think young people, when they're uniting behind that as the goal, then they are forging allegiances between different countries that might not traditionally be seen as being wealthy and powerful, but when they can work together, that's when they'll have the greatest impact. Extraordinary. Uh, We're speaking with uh, Director Celeste Gear and She's travelled far and wide to bring us a, a new film called The Endangered Generation and it uh, screened, had a special screening yesterday at Nova but is now screening from June 8th, so a bit later in the week, um, widely. And, uh, you know, I mentioned right at the outset, Celeste, that you um, brought us Then the Wind Changed. Um, gee, it's a decade ago now, I think, that it is. that film. Um, in what what that was a very personal and a very different documentary but what is it that brings you back to looking at 
climate and looking at environmental uh, stories, storytelling in, in your work? Well, I think human beings' relationship to the natural world and how we understand that is just critical to the way we exist and to the sort of future that we're wanting to create for our children. So the first film was a very intimate, personal look. I had been impacted by the Black Saturday bushfires, as you know, and it documented my own family's recovery and that of all the people who are... a lot of the people who I was living through that period of recovery with. So it was really raw and visceral. And during that time, I had the privilege of watching the natural landscape come back from a desolate, monochrome landscape into this incredible, lush, green, vibrant thing that happens when you see all the epicormal growth after a fire. Um, And since that time, we've had another horrendous batch of fires, once again using this term unprecedented, which we're going to be hearing increasingly used. And it seemed to me that the general mindset hadn't really progressed that far. So I know in a very lived personal experience way the impacts of what happens when the natural world says, I've had enough. And the natural world is, we are of the natural world, but we can't control it. So I think it's that question of control and our delusional sense that we can control the natural world that fascinates me and one of the lines that really stands out for me in the endangered generation is when esteemed Monash scientist Professor Stephen Chown who is working on the preservation of Antarctica says we have the power to change an entire planetary system and yet we do not have the power to control the effects of that change. Yeah, that really stuck with me as well um, from your film and you get that sense of we don't know what we're doing. Well, we're not going to be able to stop it. Yeah. And and so, I mean, what do you want people to take away from the film? And, I, I mean, I guess, you know, we've already spoken about collaboration and that was that sung from, from the screen, that sense of if we bring different people together that weren't working together previously, we might get a different outcome. That definitely came through. But, what, you know, what, were you, what are you hoping that people will take, once, take from this film when they see it? Some sense of agency and some sense that they can contribute to this in whatever way, in whatever small way. It could be as simple as working out what you're interested in, what lights you up as a person. This is actually a comment that Juan Carlos made yesterday, which I found really energising in the Q&A after the film, and he said, you know, climate change or the climate crisis impacts every aspect of our daily lives. So what are you interested in? And... And just follow that. Are you interested in fashion, travel, music? There'll be some way that climate change is impacting that. And then what sort of person are you? Are you a communicator? Are you a builder? Are you a collaborator? Are you a big ideas person or do you like the detail? Are you a filmmaker? Are you a filmmaker? (laughs) Yeah. So you look at your interests and you look at your tools and you say, what can I bring to this? Because I really think that everybody can bring something. You know, uh, I mean, the Q&A and having one class on the screen there, you know, beaming in, I assume, from, from Panama was... Fabulous. I, I enjoyed that and I know that you won't be able to have that at every screening of the film but uh, yesterday his insights were really uh, impressive to me and I think what he brought was fun, what he brought was a spark 
of interest. But I think, you know, he's he's you know young compared to a lot of people. He's not sixteen. He's 30, 31, I think. Um, but this passion that it's me and my generation and the ones that are going to come, we're the ones. We're going to do this, and that sense was palpable. And I guess, you know, uh, this this idea that he they are through this um, organization that you met in the the jungle going to chain the next climate negotiators. Wow, that's really mind blowing. And industry leaders, you know, they want to train people up now who can then be working in the energy companies, who can be working in big business, who can be walk, working across all these different spheres so that those people then have a network and that they're unified by this common goal. So I think what I do want the film to do is when you look at the issue of climate change as if it's something out there, overwhelming, what can I do? It's heavy, it's dark, it's depressing and that seems to just engender a sense of what can I do? I'll just do nothing. But once you start meeting people who are doing things, their energy is really infectious and exciting and inspiring. And so if you've got a choice between doing nothing (laughs) and feeling shit about it or doing something and being with these exciting people, I know which one I'd choose. Yeah, I'm going to choose that one too. And uh, I'm going to follow uh, Juan Carlos on, on Instagram and feed off his energy. And I just think it's a wonderful thing that I learned from your film that we have these young people being trained up and the agency there um, coming into the world. Congratulations. And uh, it'd be remiss of me not to ask what's coming next for you, Celeste. Um, any projects you can talk of? I'm going to take a little break from um, existential crises. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move into some dark comedy, I think. Good work. And uh, we look forward to it. And uh, uh, my understanding is that the Endangered Generation will screen from 8th of June at Cinema Nova. Anywhere else it will travel to? Well, I'm actually starting a national tour today. So we're going out to all major cities today. And yes, but in Melbourne, a limited season starting from this Thursday. The dates and times will be on the Nova website. And if you are interested in going, it is a beautiful film to see on the cinema. Would you agree, Kalia? Absolutely. It's massive. And also the cinematography is gorgeous. And uh, we haven't talked about it today, but there's a whole string of people from all over the place that have worked to capture the footage. Yes, amazing suite of cinematographers. And we go to Antarctica, the jungles of Panama, deserts, urban landscapes in Indonesia. So it's a really rich picture of humanity and nature in all these different places. But go and see it soon because cinemas are... It's a tricky game at the moment, so... Yeah. See it while you can. Cinema Nova, Heart of Carlton. Congrats again, Celeste, and thanks for coming into Triple R. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.